today's reading is from Psalm 103, which can be found on the page 605 in the Church Bibles. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so, to, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass, They flourish like a flower on the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Um, Thanks so much for that reading, Roscoe. Um, Let's pray as we come to God's word and let's ask him to speak to us. Father God, we thank you for the words that we've just heard. And we want to pray that they would not just stay words in our, on a page, but that they would be to us your own words of life spoken into our hearts. Please lift our hearts, incline them to you this morning. Please open our hearts up by your word. Speak into us. Please unite our hearts. So that instead of chasing after a million different things, we all of our loves and affections are united on you and satisfy our hearts this morning with your unfailing love in Jesus, we pray. Please call us to worship you so that our hearts work properly and do what they were made for. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've got a question for us this morning as we start. And the question is this. I think it'll be up on the screen. How can I make myself rejoice? It might be a little bit further on than that. There we go. How can I make myself rejoice? And to help us with this, I want us to think for a moment about lizards. Um, Go with me here. If you know about lizards, one thing that you probably know about them is that they are cold-blooded. Lizards can't regulate their internal body temperature. Like us, like, you know, wherever we are, our bodies will try and get the same temperature. Lizards don't do that. 
Now, that has some advantages. It means that they, they're not really susceptible to viruses or bacterial infections. It means if there's not much food, they can just go to a cold place and not use up much energy inside. But it's got disadvantages. Because if you want to go and do your lizardy thing in the daytime, like go and catch insects, hunt your prey, that kind of thing, you need to warm up. You need the sun to shine on you so that your metabolism gets kick-started, so your muscles warm up, so you can do the things you need to do to stay alive. Which is why you see lizards in the next picture doing things like this. Like, I remember being in Mexico about 10 years ago, and in the morning you'd see lizards um, coming out onto rocks and just sitting there in the sun. It looks great, it looks like sunbathing, it looks like a lot of fun. But they're not being lazy, they're warming up so that their bodies work properly. Maybe you feel a bit lizard-like some mornings. You wake up and just feel a bit sluggish, like a bit of sunbathing, a bit of time under a heat lamp, that would do you some good. When it comes to the question, how can I make myself rejoice? I want to suggest that we are lizards. We are spiritually cold-blooded. That actually, we can't make ourselves rejoice. Internally, we don't work properly. We've been looking at this series called Songs to Make Your Heart Sing, looking at the Psalms and how they lead us to rejoice in God. And we've seen the Christian life should be a life of joy. That if you lack joy as a Christian, then there's something wrong there. It's to be a malfunctioning Christian or a lopsided Christian. We're meant to have joy in God. And that's meant to energize the whole of our lives. It's meant to be the thing that powers us as we serve other people, as we love God, as we obey him. It's all meant to be energized and driven by that core of joy in God. But we ask, how can I make myself rejoice? How can I get that? And the answer is, we can't. We're spiritually cold-blooded. Our default is to lack joy and be cold towards God. How many of you came into church this morning and said, oh, I just feel so full of joy this morning? I'm not sure many of us did. I'm not sure many of us said it out loud, at least. But how many of us were feeling it? No, we're lizards. We're cold-blooded. We can't regulate our internal joy by ourselves. And we're so used to this, we think it's normal. But as we read the Bible, as we read the Psalms that we looked at the last few weeks, we see actually it's a problem. If we're meant to be energized by joy in God and it's not there, then in the Christian life we're just going through the motions. We're trying to serve, trying to obey, trying to love other people, but it's not from that core, from that heart of joy in God. And so we don't experience the joy we're meant to have. It doesn't look attractive to other people. And it feels like there's this just shell outside of us, and it's hollow inside, and it feels fake and not real. Or even worse, maybe we are energized by something else, by pride, or by fear, or by guilt, or by legalism. And we hear the command to rejoice, and we go, huh? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm not in control of that. I can't make myself rejoice. Maybe you think, I try to be joyful, but I can't. Don't you know what's going on in my family? I can't rejoice. Or don't you know my personality type? I'm not the kind of person who can just do that. How can I make myself rejoice? Well, we can't. Now, King David, who wrote this psalm, has a slightly different answer. Verse 1, he says, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Now, some of you hear that and you switch off. And King David here, he's like the over-enthusiastic guy with a rainbow guitar strap who's coming and telling you to be jolly when you don't feel jolly. You think, oh, that David, he's like, he's just praising God all the day long. It's annoying. 
But actually, what we need to see here is he's not. That's why he's saying this. He's telling himself to rejoice and to praise God because he's not praising God. This psalm is written because David is cold-blooded, just like we are, because he's a lizard, spiritually speaking. He's not working properly inside, but he wants to climb out onto a rock and get warm. He wants to find the joy he's meant to be feeling in God. So this psalm is here to help you. If you're a Christian, this psalm is here to help cold-blooded spiritual beings crawl out onto the rock where the sun shines on us, to teach you to cultivate daily joy in God. If you're not a Christian, maybe you just don't see what there is to be joyful about in the Christian life. The Christian life looks about as joyful as being a Tranmere Rovers supporter. Although someone here happens to be joyful about that. But hopefully, along the way, you'll see that there's something different about the Christian life. Maybe it's different from what you think it is. Whoever you are, the psalmist here to help you to do what you were made to do. To find your purpose in life. We didn't to be a doctor. We didn't to get married and have kids or go and live somewhere. It's to enjoy God and to rejoice in him. So, we're going to look at this in three parts, this psalm. But they're all headed by, if you look in verse 2, David says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not, or remember. There will be three things he's taking us through that he wants us to remember. Now, just there, a couple of quick observations. So, firstly, David isn't telling us to do positive thinking. So I could stand here and say to myself, I am successful and rich and attractive and I'm going to fulfill all my wildest dreams. And I could say it a hundred times and I might start to believe it, but it wouldn't be true. This isn't about that. David's saying remember. In other words, real things. It's not about drifting off from reality. It's about being anchored in reality. And the other thing to notice is it's not optional. David is commanding himself here praise the lord it's an imperative it's something he has to do he's ordering himself and you might hear like joy and think well that's a nice to have but it's not as important as I don't know, obedience or evangelism or reading the bible they're saying this is about obedience we have a responsibility to remember these things that will lead us to joy in god a responsibility to pursue joy and that might mess with you a little bit because you're thinking, well, responsibility, that's, that's chores and things I have to do. And then joy, that's really good. They don't fit together. But they were saying, no, no, you have a responsibility, if you're a Christian, to pursue joy in God. And it comes as you remember these things he's about to tell us. So what does he tell his soul to remember? Firstly, this is verses 2 to 5. Remember that God renews you inside. Remember God renews you inside. If you've got your Bible open, then look down verses 2 to 5. He says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so your youth is renewed like the eagles. David says, Remember all his benefits. Remember that when you know God, he brings all sorts of good things into your life. Actually, he, he lifts you. And he's looking back at his own experience. If you know David's story, he was a shepherd boy and God raised him to be a king, literally crowned him. You remember that he had to face enemies like the giant Goliath and God helped him. 
He had a king who wanted to kill him. He had to be protected. He had to run away. He had to be kept safe. He had to be forgiven. He was a murderer and an adulterer. These are real things David's remembering. And maybe you can think of real things in your life. Times God's answered a prayer. Times God has maybe even brought healing into your life. Or kept you safe from something. And you can call that to mind and remember it and praise God. But David's talking about an inner reality here as well. He's talking to his own soul. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He's talking about what God does for every single Christian. And you see the the rising sequence that he uses in these verses. So he takes you from where you are and he forgives you. And then he heals you. And then he lifts you and redeems you. And then crowns you with love and compassion. And then he satisfies your desires with good things. Do you see that going up through the verses? Until at the end of verse 5, so your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now I wonder, if you were to choose an animal that summed up the Christian life for you right now, what would you choose? I think maybe some of us would choose something like a tortoise. Like slow, ponderous, a little bit depressing, a little bit comical. Or maybe an ant, like carrying big, heavy loads and it feels tiring and hard work and maybe a little bit kind of pointless. David says, your Christian life, God wants to be like an eagle. He's not saying eagles are immortal or forever young. He's saying when you see an eagle flying and soaring, it looks effortless. There's vigor, there's energy, there's freedom. That's what God does in our lives. Pick up a few more words in this. Do you see the word all that keeps coming up all his benefits all your sins all your diseases it's a big word it's encompassing everything all of your sins forgiven none of them left all of your diseases healed now don't he's saying physical diseases or that can include that i think he's saying all the twistedness and brokenness that comes in us when we try and live without god he heals it all and that, verse, that word all is going to keep coming back. And then verse 4, he crowns us with love and compassion. And those are big words, aren't they? So many of us are driven through life by desire to be loved. To be liked, to be accepted, for someone to see us as we are and say they love us. And that's why we hide from people. That's why we retreat from them. That's why we present our best face and only a carefully curated picture of who we are. And we filter it and we... Make sure they can see it in the best light. But in God, we have someone who sees through all that and still looks at us with love. And compassion, that means to feel with somebody. Again, so many of us, we feel misunderstood or we feel hard done to or like no one understands, no one gets us. In God, we have someone who not only understands us at the deepest level, but he feels for us. He's moved by us. And those words, love and compassion, they're going to keep coming up in this psalm as well. Well, this is what God does. He renews us inside. It's real for every person here who's a Christian. David says, remember it. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you can forget this so easily. Maybe if you've been a Christian less time, this is a way that you can help those who have been a Christian longer by just reminding them of your story, which is their story as well. That God has renewed us inside. He's forgiven us, healed us, redeemed us. He renews you inside. Secondly, he forgives all your failure. This is the second thing David wants us to remember, verses 6 to 12. He forgives all your failure. He moves now from his personal experience to the history of Israel. 
And if you look at their history, one thing you notice is they provoke God all the time. Now, we all know someone, don't we, who's easily provoked. They just, they flare up easily or their buttons are easy to press. And it can be annoying. So if you, if you have children or, you know, siblings and they're just provoking each other all the time, like, oh, stop it, it's really annoying. Sometimes it can be scary. Maybe you've known a teacher or a parent or a housemate who's easily provoked and it feels like you're just on eggshells the whole time. It can be funny. So if you know the right buttons to press and you can get a reaction out of somebody, we do this in staff meetings sometimes. I won't tell you which pastor we go for. I'll leave that to your imagination. But God's people, they provoked God all the time. If you look at their story, um, they cry out to God for rescue from Egypt, from slavery. And God rescues them. He brings them out powerfully and wonderfully. And then a few days later, they go, we want to be back in Egypt where there was better food. You wish you were where? And then God provides food for them. He provides manna from heaven, this amazing, miraculous, divine, tasty food. And then a few days later, they say, where's the meat? All we've got is this miraculous, divine, falls from heaven everyday food that tastes like honey and it's wonderful. We hate it. And you think, what? And then God gives them his law. The only people ever to have a God living among them who says, here's, what you, here's how it works. Here's how you stay in relationship with me. And they go, let's build a golden cow. And let's bow down to it, because here's your God. Here's the one who brought you out of Egypt. And you think, whose idea was that? They provoke God all the time. And you read it and you think, just lead them out into the wilderness and let them all die. But he doesn't. Verses 7 to 10. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. It means he rescued them again and again and again. And he showed them what he's like. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He will not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He showed them what he's like. And what he's like is he is patient with us. He's patient. Literally, it says he has a long nose in the original language. And that needs a bit of explaining. It's because imagine someone getting angry. Often they'll do something like this. Or maybe their nostrils will start to flare. There's something about anger that seems to concentrate itself in in noses somehow. And it's saying that takes a long time with God. He's not easily provoked. He doesn't get angry easily. He doesn't hold on to things. He's patient. You get these four nots or won'ts. He won't keep accusing. He won't stay angry. He won't treat us like we deserve. He won't repay us what we earn. And that's such good news. Because we provoke God all the time. I know I do. If you're a Christian, I suspect you know that you do as well. If you're not a Christian, let me help you out a little bit there. Maybe you think, well, why would God care about what I do? I'm pretty good, and why would he be bothered? Well, one of the words I've learned recently is to be woke. To be aware, socially aware of injustice and things that are wrong, and to call them out. So when someone says something out in the public arena or on social media that someone perceives to be wrong, they instantly get absolutely hammered by the whole world pointing out what's wrong. And I want to say there's something right about that. There have been things that have been pointed out that should have been pointed out. Much injustice that has been brought out that 
It's right that that was done. But have you ever seen something and kind of joined in the outrage? Oh, that's terrible. How dare they? And then realized, actually, no, I've done that. Or I've thought that. Or I've said that. And actually, when I see myself, I'm disappointed. And if other people could see a bit more of me, they'd be a little bit outraged. And so how much more, if there was a God who could see through me and see everything, how much more would he be provoked by what he sees? So God should leave us to our own devices. That's what the Bible says. To let us destroy ourselves and then after all that, face the consequences of spitting in his face. But he doesn't. He's patient with us. But he's not just patient with our failures. If there's more here. He loves us despite our failures. Look at verse 11. David says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And you feel he's trying to describe something enormous and kind of reaching out for whatever he can find to describe it. Um, if you're a parent and you've read books to your children, you, you might know this one. Um, how mu- no, guess How Much I Love You. Anyone familiar with that book? I'm seeing a few smiling faces. Okay. It's a book that does something a little bit similar. So little nut brown hair there on the left. He is trying to tell big nut brown hair how much he loves him. And so he's going like this. This is how much I love you. But the problem is big nut brown hair can always outdo him. So big nut brown hair has got bigger arms and say, oh, this is how much I love you. Little nut brown hair can say, oh, I love you as much as I can hop. And big nut brown hair can hop higher. And then little nut brown hair says, well, I, I love you as far as that gate. I love you as far as that hill. I love you as far as the moon. And then as little nut brown hair is going to sleep, big nut brown hair says, well, I love you to the moon and back. And you go, oh, that's nice. God says to anyone who thinks he's simply putting up with you, that he's just tolerating you because of your failure, my love for you is higher than the sky. My love for you isn't measured by your failure. My love for you can't be measured by the distance from here to the edge of the universe and back, not even close. He loves us despite our failures. As high as the heavens are above the earth. But even more than that, he removes our failures. He banishes them. He banishes our failures. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now, to, to illustrate this, I... Um, thought this is the best I could probably do. So this is our situation as people. Um, here's me. Here's my sin. And they're joined together. There's nothing I can do about it. They're, they're together. I can't separate them. Maybe I've turned over a new leaf, but it's there again. There's me. There's my sin. It's joined to me. All of my failure. Everything that's wrong with me. And this is what God does. And if my helpers could come up. you he takes me in one direction my sin in the other direction as far further further as far as you can get as far as the east is from the west now this is quite a small room but if you ignore the curvature of the earth as the psalmist is right now the point is you could keep going forever and you would never get there you can never reach the east you can never reach the west that is how far we're separated from everything that is wrong with us if we trust God. The best thing I could think to illustrate this, I, was, I saw yesterday that Voyager 1, the probe launched 40 years ago, is 13 billion miles from Earth and still accelerating. 
Now imagine one of the engineers thinks, oh no, I left my keys inside the compartment of that probe. There's no way he's getting it back. There's no way he can chase after it and get that back. It's gone. It's like God has loaded all of our failure, all of our brokenness into that probe and sent it off into the universe and then turned his back on it. And so now he looks at me and he cannot see my sin. He looks at my sin and he cannot see me. He will never see the two things together ever again. That's what God does if you're a Christian. And the psalmist didn't know how, but we do. Because at the cross, that failure that was around our necks, that was connected to us, Jesus took it on himself. And he put it as far away as the east is from the west. And on the cross, with outstretched hands, he says, guess how much I love you. He banishes our failure from us, as far as the east is from the west. Lots of us as Christians, we wonder how God feels about us. Does he feel disappointed? There's nothing like feeling like you're the disappointment in the family to steal your joy. Or is he angry with me? Is he going to accuse me for something? David says, your failure is banished. It was put on Jesus. You're united to him, so God is not disappointed with you. Any more than he could be disappointed with his son. He will not accuse you. Because to do that, he would have to accuse Jesus all over again. And he's never going to do that. Because of Jesus, there is no square inch of life you can walk through that isn't permeated by God's love for you. No crevice you can seek out that is not filled with God's heart of compassion for you. There is nowhere that he is anything but loving towards you if you're trusting Jesus. And when you get that, that leads to joy. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He renews you inside. And he banishes all your failures. Thanks, guys. That's great. He renews you inside. He banishes your failures. And thirdly, he swallows up all your frailty. This is verses 13 to 18. It's almost strange in some way that the more connected our world becomes, the more we're aware of our frailty and our fragility. You'll have seen in the news in this past week or so, Kobe Bryant, an enormous name in, less so here, much more so in the States, in the world of sport, in the world of race relations. Such a famous name, such a well-loved name. In his early 40s, going to his coach's daughter's basketball team, and the helicopter crashes, and they both die. Or coronavirus. And we see it kind of getting closer and closer. And then it's in the UK. And then what's going to happen? You look at the news. And if you didn't realize it already, it makes you realize your fragility and your vulnerability. That anything could be taken away. And we experience it as well, don't we? We get old. Bits of us stop working. Our hair goes gray and falls out. Um, when I turned 30, people would joke with me, oh, it's all downhill from here. But like, genuinely, we see the human life as a kind of maybe a few years of uphill and then just inexorable decline from there on. Google Photos reminds me every day, do you remember this day? Do you remember this day? Do you remember this day three years ago when you had more hair, when you were smiling, when everything was happy, and look at this, oh, isn't that wonderful? And yeah, can't get it back. It's going. Andrew Marvell the poet wrote, had we but world enough and time, and we realize we don't. We're not going to fulfill all our dreams. 
Medics, maybe you're at an advantage here. You see more of this fragility than most of us. But then lots of us in this room are a bit younger, and maybe you experience this as you realize slowly that all your plans aren't going to work out in life. Maybe when you look at your parents and go, when did you stop being superhuman? How did that happen? And then we're frail, and then we're gone. You ever been back to a place that you used to be in? It used to be your place, and it doesn't remember you anymore. It's someone else's place now. Someone else lives there. Someone else calls it home. How many of you know the names of all your great-grandparents? We vanish. By the way, I think this is why we, when we see something old and big, we take pictures of ourselves with it. We do selfies. We're trying to connect ourselves with something that will outlast us. We're aware that our castles crumble as fast as we can build them. And that scares us. And if you're plugged into City Church, you know that in many ways right now, we're aware of our frailty. Just the concentration of bereavements and illnesses and family uncertainties that have been in this church in the last few months. We know we're frail. And it's scary. But David knows this. He's realistic. Look at verses 15 and 16. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. And some of you, you you're glad he says that because it's, it's realism. Like, okay, good. David is speaking into my situation. Some of you, you're a bit annoyed because this isn't what you came out this morning for, to be told that you're going to die. And you're feeling annoyed at having that thrust in your face. But you need to know that because A, it's real. However much we insulate ourselves from it, that is reality. But B, without feeling that... You're going to miss the force of what David says now. That God has compassion on our frailty. Verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God doesn't despise weakness. He doesn't take advantage of our weakness like so many famous figures we know and hear of. He doesn't ignore us in our weakness like we might do with other people. He's like a father to a child. A father who knows his child's weakness. And that makes him tender and compassionate. Because he knows where they trip up. He knows where they're weak. Now I'm a father. I've got three young children. And sometimes I forget. I forget they're only little. And I get a bit annoyed, a bit angry. Why can't you do up your shoes? Why can't you get to sleep? Why can't you stop crying? Why can't you do long multiplication? Why can't you do this or that? I forget. I forget how they're made. He's a better father than that. He knows how we're made and he's gentle with us. He knows our frailty and he's tender. He's not there going, why can't you pull it together? Why can't you cope with life? Why can't you get over it and move on? No, no. He knows that we are dust. And he's moved by that. Our frailty brings out his compassion. But then David does something strange. Verse 17. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And you scratch your head and you think, how can everlasting love be with something that's not everlasting? How does that work? Only if his love makes us everlasting. Only if his love overcomes our frailty. He doesn't just feel for our frailty, he overcomes it. God's love makes us everlasting. And this is what Jesus came to do. Because in Jesus, God took on our frailty. In Jesus, the eternal Son of God became time-bound. The unbeatable Son could be beaten up. 
the invincible one learned to bleed the immortal one so alive that he could not die borrowed death from us and at the cross he took our frailty and he gave us his indestructible life he became what we are so that we might be what he is if you're a christian jesus has swallowed up your frailty at the cross and his love makes you everlasting so that you will outlast your frailty because his love outlasts your frailty and your mortality your fragility your vulnerability your loss will itself crumble away in the face of his glory and remembering that david says leads you to joy i remember a christian couple not at this church who had a little son and they then were pregnant with a daughter but the daughter was stillborn and it was deeply traumatic for them and for other people a few Sundays later they were in church and I thought wow that's early and then the band started playing and I thought who chose this song it was a song called there's a place where the street shines some of you might know it and it includes the words no more pain no more sadness no more suffering no more tears and I thought of all the songs of all the songs we could be singing How are they going to cope with that? Are they even going to be able to stay in the room singing that? And I turned around to look at them. And they were there with their little son. And they were dancing. They were dancing as they sang that song. There is no fear of frailty for the Christian. You say, yes, I'm falling apart. Yes, I live in a world of transience where things and people I love might be taken away from me. Yes, I will vanish. My great-grandchildren probably won't know my name, but my frailty has been swallowed up at the cross. You are everlasting. The best is never in the past. So you can dance in those ruins until he rebuilds you forever. He renews you inside. He banishes your failures, and he swallows up your frailty. So David says at the end, Praise the Lord. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven. And his kingdom rules over all. You see, he started with himself and then he's talked about God's people. Now he sees God enthroned over all of creation, over all things as king. And he calls the whole universe to praise God. He says, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. You are servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion, which is everywhere. He imagines the end of time and the moment that all of history is heading towards when everything in creation bursts out in praise for God as Jesus returns. And then he zooms right back onto himself, sees himself in the middle of that, and says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Do you see where David has got to? At the beginning, he wasn't praising God. He was a cold-blooded lizard, crawling out onto a rock. And by the end, he's imagining himself in the choir at the end of time, as if he was there. That's what the psalm has done. That's what remembering these things has done for David. And that's what this psalm is here to do for us. Maybe you feel some of that as we've gone through this. If we've remembered these things about God, maybe you felt some of that joy coming up. That is what this psalm is meant to do for you, not just today, but tomorrow. And every day. It's meant to teach you how to cultivate that kind of joy.
Remember, David started calling his soul to rejoice in God. That's what this psalm is here to teach us to do. It's here so we learn to call our hearts to rejoice in God. Let me just speak to two sets of people. If you're you're here and you you say you're not a Christian, you're not sure whether you're a Christian. Now, I haven't said much directly to you, I know that. But I hope you've seen a vision of the Christian life that is different from what you thought. That actually God isn't distant and tyrannical and kind of cold and aloof, but he wants a relationship with you. And he'll relate to you in the best possible of ways. And he wants you to know him and enjoy him. And that's the life that he has for you and is calling you to. Maybe for the first time, these things are coming together and you're aware of not wanting, not, not being who you want to be. Maybe aware of your frailty. And this idea as a God who's loving and compassionate and can cover all of that, that's attractive. Well, if that is you, can we say as a church we believe this isn't just words, this is real. This is reality. And maybe you came with someone. Talk to them about it. Find out more. Ask who who is Jesus? What does this mean for them? On the way out, you'll see a book table saying books free to take. Take anything. Take everything on there. If you'll go away and just think about who is this Jesus? What difference does he make for me? We've got a discussion course that Angela might mention um, going on for a few more weeks on Monday evening. That would be a great place to come and just sit quietly. You don't have to say anything and just listen and take it in and find out more. If you are a Christian, though, joy is meant to be the engine that drives your Christian life. And you can't manufacture it by yourself. We're cold-blooded. So the most important thing you can learn to do is to remind yourself of the gospel every day. To learn to preach the gospel to yourself. So that every day when you feel sluggish and flat and you wake up just feeling a bit, remind yourself God's renewed you. Or every day when you feel guilty and far from God, remind yourself that he's banished your failure. Or when you're fearful and anxious, remind yourself he's swallowed up all your frailty. And if you don't, quite simply, you won't work properly. Your Christianity will be driven by something else. And in all sorts of ways, it will be ugly. Just a couple of really practical things, some things I found helpful. In our home group, we've been working through Ephesians. I think all the home groups are working through the book of Ephesians. Some of our home group have started learning, memorizing bits of it. Why not memorize a couple of verses from Ephesians 2, which we did this last week? At the beginning of Ephesians 2, it says, you were dead. Then verse 4, it says, but God made you alive. It's a paraphrase. It's not even the proper verses. Just learn that. Put it on a sticker, on this home screen of your phone, something so that every morning you see that first and you take just two minutes and think, I was dead, but God made me alive. I found that so helpful. Just in the morning routine to be thinking, this is where I was. This is where I am. This is who I am. This is what God has done. It wakes you up. Not just physically, it wakes you up spiritually. It's crawling out onto that rock so God's love and compassion shines on you and you come warm. For some of you, it might be just starting a pattern or restarting a pattern of just starting and ending the day with Jesus. For whatever reason, that's not happening right now, but maybe you can just, for me, it's literally haul myself up in bed and just sit up in bed. And that's, you know, sometimes it's too hard to even get out, but that's the place I can just start turning to God's word, turning to him in prayer and asking him to shine his grace into my life, remind me of the gospel. If you want to take away, there's, there are these books on the book table in the um, 
where coffee and tea are. It's called The Glories of God's Love. Um, really simple book. 50 reasons to preach the gospel to yourself every day and 50 ways to do it. Really short. You take a tiny bit at a time, like a paragraph each time, and that'll be a pound. And that would, if you take that and read that, that will help you, I guarantee, to remind yourself of the gospel every day. But as we finish, I'm just going to give us a moment because I'd like us, if I could be this presumptuous, to make a plan. To make a plan. How are you going to call your heart to rejoice in God this week? How are you going to rouse yourself to joy? How are you going to tune your heart to hear the music of God's grace? Get specific. When, how, what? And then maybe if you're feeling really brave, share that with someone over tea and coffee after the service. Let's take a moment. And think about that, and then I'm going to pray. take those plans and those ideas and those things that we want to do and bring them to God and ask for his strength Lord we have so little strength to raise our heads up to see the light of your glory but by the power that your spirit gives us we want to crawl out of those caves and onto the rock where we see your son where we're warmed by his love compassion and grace Make our hearts work properly, we pray. May they resonate with the notes of your love for us. May we rejoice in you and wake up every day saying, praise the Lord, my soul. We ask this so that we might have power to obey, to love other people, to follow you. We ask it so that other people might see that joy and know that they're missing out on the reason for living. But most of all, we ask it because it's why we were made. So come, Lord Jesus, and call out affection from the hearts of your children, we pray. Amen.